Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. And by the way, Happy New Year. It's a great new year. It's always a, a great opportunity for new beginnings to evaluate you know, what's happened in the past year and make plans for the new year. So Happy New Year. It is January the 1st, and on this day in 1863, Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, attempting to stitch together a nation mired in bloody civil war. Abraham Lincoln made a last-ditch but carefully calculated decision regarding the institution of slavery in America. By the end of 1862, things were not looking good for the Union. The Confederate Army had overcome Union troops in significant battles, and Britain and France were set to officially recognize the Confederacy as a separate nation. In August 1862, a letter to New York Tribune editor Horace Greeley, Lincoln confessed, My paramount object in this struggle is to save the Union, is not to either save or destroy slavery. Lincoln hoped that declaring a national policy of emancipation would stimulate a rush of the uh, southern enslaved people to the ranks of the Union Army, thus depleting the Confederacy's labor force on which the southern states depended to wage war against the North. Lincoln waited to unveil the proclamation until he could do so on the heels of a Union military success. On uh, September 22, 1862, after the Battle of Antietam, he issued a preliminary emancipation proclamation declaring all enslaved people free in the rebellious states of the, uh, as of January 1st, 1863. Lincoln and his advisors limited the proclamation's language to slavery in states outside of federal control as of uh, 1862, failing to address the contentious issue of slavery within the nation's border states, like Maryland, for example, and his attempt to appease all parties <clears throat> Lincoln left many loopholes open in the civil rights and advocates who would be forced to tackle in the future. Republican abolitionists in the North rejoiced that Lincoln had finally thrown his full weight behind the cause for which they had elected him. Though enslaved people in the South failed to rebel en masse with the signing of the proclamation, they slowly began to liberate themselves as Union armies marched into Confederate territory. Toward the end of the war, enslaved people left their former masters in droves, the form, uh, fought and grew crops for the Union Army, performed other military jobs, and worked in the northern mills. Through the uh, proclamation was not greeted with joy by all northerners, particularly northern white workers and troops fearful of job competition from an influx of formerly enslaved people. It had the distinct benefit of convincing Britain and France to steer clear of official diplomatic relations with the Confederacy. Though the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation signified Lincoln's growing resolve to preserve the Union at all costs, he still rejoiced in the ethical correctness of his decision. Lincoln admitted on New Year's Day in 1863 that he never felt more certain that I was doing the right uh, thing and that I was uh, doing in signing this paper. Although he waffled on the subject of uh, slavery in the early years of his presidency, he would thereafter be remembered as the great emancipator, <clears throat> To Confederate sympathizers, however, Lincoln's signing of the Emancipation Proclamation reinforced their image of him as a hated despot and ultimately inspired his assassination by John Wilkes Booth on April 14, 1865. 
the great emancipator, Abraham Lincoln. By the way, uh, this segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you give them a call. The website is johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date. By reading Life in Naples, the website is lifeinnaples.net. Well, the Homeland Security Department agency entrusted with removing illegal immigrants is providing a staggering portrait of America's border crisis, revealing the backlog of aliens inside the United States awaiting decisions has nearly doubled under the present President Joe Biden to more than 6 million, while arrests of suspected terrorists and violent offenders has all also exploded. The year-end report from U.S. Customs and Immigration Enforcement released Friday showed nearly every measure of illegal immigration rose substantially in 2023, candidly admitting the southern border is being overrun by millions of illegal crossers has taken a major toll on the agency. The report offered warning signs for both liberals who support loosening immigration enforcement and conservatives who are worried the nation's security is being jeopardized by Biden's policies, which have lured millions into the country and overwhelmed cities like Chicago, thousands of miles away from the southern border. Liberal activists are certain to be alarmed by the number of illegal aliens kept in detention. ICE reported the number of exploded 40.1% from 26,299 last year to 36,845 at the end of 2023. That finished, by the way, that year it finished on September the 30th. <clears throat> Meanwhile, the number of illegal aliens permitted in the country without being detained, usually with a court date far in the future, like in 2030 or something like that, left 30% in 2023 to more than 6.2 million folks uh, with uh, court dates in the future. Nearly doubled the 3.26 million total in the last year of Donald Trump's presidency. The report said the vast majority of this total came from southwest border, where illegal crossings have surged to as many as 12,000 or more per day. Administrative arrests rose sharply in 2023 to 170,000 and more, with more than 43% of those apprehended have been some sort of criminal conviction or pending charges. <clears throat> The figures confirmed claimed uh, that uh, Trump, during his 2024 campaign, that large numbers, numbers of illegal immigrants come with criminal baggage and, and uh, problems with mental health and all kinds of things. Expulsions of high-risk illegal immigrants by ISIS enforcement and removal operations also jumped by historic proportions. The report said that in the year 2023, uh, they removed 3,406 knowns or suspected gang members, an increase of 27.7% compared to 2022. And 139 known or suspected terrorists, a 148% increase from 2022. Overall, ICE completed 142,580 deportations in 2023, nearly double the prior year's total, but that number is still small. It's dwarfed by the 2.5 million illegal crossers encountered at the southern border alone. The agency has removed only 212 unaccompanied minors uh, in this year, despite 137,275 arriving at the southern border. Uh, unaccompanied minors, can you believe that? Beyond the human toll endured by ICE agents and Border Patrol officers, the report also gave glimpses of the growing cost of illegal immigration wave for taxpayers. 
the report revealed that office paying for health care for detained and non-detained illegal immigrants spent $352 million in 2023. And that doesn't count what's being spent in Chicago and other places around the United States. The ICE report is certain to give uh, House Republicans more ammunition in their pursuit to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas when they return to work in January. It's a sad report coming from a, a Homeland Security. Well, so what's President Biden doing about it? Well, he's uh, Department of Homeland Security is developing a program to provide illegal aliens and border crosses with photo ID cards similar to a driver's license upon their release in the United States. The iSecurity Docket, uh, Docket Card, or SDC, project is being led by the Office of Immigration Program Evaluation, and the program is confirmed in the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Annual Report. The SDC will provide a uniform and durable card to non-citizens upon release, facilitating reliable access to commonly lost or damaged immigration-related paperwork. Uh, the program aimed at uh, easing uh, ICE personnel's workload when in- encountering non-citizens with a card and decrease the burden of non-citizens when interacting with ICE. The ultimate goal of the Biden administration is to limit illegal aliens' face-to-face contact with DHS. That's the ultimate goal. Can you believe that? The, the program is seen as a normalization of illegal immigration. According to John Fabricatori, a former ICE official advisory board member at the National Immigration Center for Enforcement, a normalization of illegal immigration. Can you believe it? The program's issuance of photo IDs to illegal aliens and border crosses is raising concerns among immigration hawks and proponents of national security. They believe such IDs would provide a false sense of legitimacy to illegal aliens, making it easier for them to stay and work illegally in the United States. The Biden administration defends the program, stating that it will uh, allow non-citizens to obtain legal access to common documents and services quickly. So that's Joe Biden's response, is to start uh, start issuing cards, identification cards to uh, illegal immigrants. In the meantime, uh, on top of that, the U.S. Department of Justice says it will sue Texas over a new law that makes illegal entry into Texas from a foreign country between ports of entry a state crime. Governor Greg Abbott signed SB4 into law on December the 18th, saying its goal is to stop the tidal wave of illegal entry into Texas. It creates a new state criminal offense for illegal entry into Texas from a foreign nation. Repeat offenders who illegally re-enter Texas can face prison sentences of up to 20 years. Uh, Principal uh, Deputy Assistant Attorney General Brian Boynton on Thursday sent a letter to Abbott that states SB4 is unconstitutional and will disrupt federal government operations. CBS News published the letter, which constitutes notice that the DOJ intends to bring a lawsuit to enforce the supremacy of federal government law and enjoin the enforcement of SB4. Texas has until January 3rd to confirm that SB4 will not be enforced. If it doesn't, he said, the DOJ will pursue an all-appropriate legal remedies to ensure that Texas does not interfere with the functions of the federal government. Can't, that's just unbelievable. They're getting in the way of states trying to preserve their own integrity and, and law enforcement. And uh, the government says, hey, that's our job. And 
in spite of the fact we're not doing it. In response to the letter, Abbott posted a statement on social media stating, the Biden administration not only refuses to enforce current U.S. immigration laws, they now want to stop Texas from enforcing laws against illegal immigration. I've never seen such hostility to the rule of law in America. Biden is destroying America. Texas is trying to save it. Abbott says that he intends to take all legal challenges on Texas border bills to the U.S. Supreme Court, and good for him. Really appreciate the fact that he's taking a stand on these issues. Now, uh, if you believe in climate change, you can't believe the irony of this statement. Maine Governor Janet Mills has proposed that Maine adopt California's ban on all sales of internal combustion energy and vehicles by 2035. But just when the Maine Board of Environmental Protection was supposed to vote on the imbecilic plan, a winter storm caused widespread power outages in the state, and the vote had to be delayed and postponed. That is divine justice, isn't it? It's unbelievable. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you give them a call. The website is johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Mark Schulman, founder and publisher of historycentral.com. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. And now serving dinner, 4 to 8 p.m., Wednesdays through Saturdays, a terrific menu. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Collier County Sheriff Kevin Rambaugh says the number one reason the elderly become victims is isolation. The Collier Senior Center goes a long way in keeping seniors connected with the community and with each other. The Collier Senior Center, located at 4898 Coronado Parkway in Golden Gate, provides comprehensive information regarding services and resources that affect the quality of life of older adults and their caregivers in Collier County, empowering them to maintain independent and meaningful lives. Here's Esther Lully, director of Collier Senior Center. Everyone, every senior is welcome. There's diversity there. It's vibrant. It's a caring atmosphere. So there's a reason we offer the services and programs that we do. We want to help enrich the lives of senior members and provide support to their caregivers. Want to find out more? Visit CollierSeniorCenter.org. That's CollierSeniorCenter.org. Or call the Collier Senior Center at 239-252-4541. That's 252 252- 
4541. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with John Mildemore. He's the editor-at-large at fee.org. Right now we have with us Mark Schulman. Mark is the founder and publisher of a terrific multimedia website. It's called HistoryCentral.com. Great for kids of all ages, including you and I. I hope you check it out, HistoryCentral.com. Mark, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you, Mark. That would be interesting to do a year in the review and take a look at what's happened in what I'm going to call a very contentious and difficult last year. Sound like a good idea? Absolutely. Okay, Absolutely. well, let's, let's start off with the Middle East and uh, what's happened there. Okay, so there are a couple of different levels of what happened in the Middle East in the last year. Um, the uh, continued uh, strife between Sunnis and Shiites seemed to be being dialed back. There was some talk of, uh, of a uh, peaceful uh, entree between Saudi Arabia and Iran, mm. and um, things were looking in the general direction of uh, positive direction, let's put it this way, for most of the year. In Israel, that was completely convulsed with um, fighting over judicial reform, which was more than just reform, but an attempt to make a more autocratic uh, government where there was less, uh, there were less uh, ability to uh, stop the government from doing whatever it might want to do, no checks and balances, which in Israel doesn't have a lot. And that was most of what took place in Israel over the year. And there was a center of a lot of discussions of what was going on in the Middle East for much of the year, and then things all changed on October 7th when uh, Hamas attacked Israel, um, the worst day in Israel's history where it lost 1,200 people, including mostly civilians amongst those who, who died, and they kidnapped a couple of hundred, and that began the Gaza-Israeli war that's gone on until now. That has involved other actors in the meantime. It's involved Hezbollah in the north, which is an Iranian, pro Iranian proxy not totally controlled by Iran, but to a very large extent. Mm -hmm. And to an additional extent, the Houthis, who are located in Yemen, and they got involved, A, in first um, firing on Israel, and then intercepting basically all international commerce that went near them. And they sort of control the area called the Bab Mand, which is a strait that allows access to the Red Sea and eventually to the Suez Canal. So they can basically cut off all transportation to the Suez Canal, which they have, to a very large extent, done. Most companies have now decided not to ship that way, which adds two to three weeks at least into the voyage of most ships coming from the Far East. And so that's, of course, having a worldwide impact in terms of shipping rates and everything else. Yeah. Um, the United States, the Britain, and about seven other countries have gotten together to create a maritime force to defend against that, and yesterday, actually, the U.S. sunk three of the four Houthi boats to try to take over a merchant vessel. And um, they're kind of strange people, I have to say. Um, basically, um, one of the aircraft carriers sent a, uh, some attack air, um, helicopters to defend, and they warned off the boats, Yeah. and they expected them to run. Instead, of the, the boats opened fire on the U.S. attack helicopters, 
which seems a very stupid thing to do, quite honestly. <laughs> and they immediately three of the four were sunk. I mean, the U.S. has very clear rules of engagement. They generally don't tend to fire on people yeah. unless fired upon. But once they were fired upon, there was no issue here. Um, so that took place. And on top of all of that, a lot of the Iranian-backed militias have been attacking U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria. The United States still maintains a small presence there. Uh, a, to continue the fight against ISIS, which is much, much smaller, but still exists. Um, and they've been, been attacking U.S. bases. Uh, so far, not creating any casualties, but some damage. Uh, they've wounded a number of people, though, as well. So that's overall in terms of the Middle East during this period of time. Yeah. Um, and we don't know where it's all going. Let's put it that way. Well, and apparently there's a... <clears throat> Uh, the news is that apparently uh, President Biden hung up on <laughs> Netanyahu for, because of a disagreement on tax revenue and where there's going to go. In well, no, it's not really the tax revenue issue. There's a disagreement because Netanyahu <clears throat> refuses to, to give a plan for the day after. Mm -hmm. And everyone in Israel is basically, oh, the army is asking for it. Everyone is asking for a, a plan for the day after. The problem, and as we all know, you know, the old Clausewitz statement that War is an extension of politics for another means. So you, it's a very difficult thing to fight a war without knowing what you want to achieve in the end politically, because all, end, all wars, regardless of which ones, end somehow, right? There has to be something at the, after the war. And Netanyahu, because of his coalition, and he has a very, very uh, right-wing coalition made up of really, and that's not right-wing in American sense, it's really um, far-right people who believe in annexing all the territories and all sorts of other things, and they refuse to, they threaten him that they'll bolt, bolt his, his, excuse me, his coalition if he comes up with a plan for the day after. And so he's avoiding that, and he's avoiding that because all the polls show that if elections were held today, uh, Netanyahu wouldn't be prime minister the day after the elections. He's, he's down to like 22 seats compared to 40 or so that he got in the last election. His popularity... Gets a, he gets a rating of three on a scale of ten amongst Israeli public in terms of competence right now to be prime minister because he's considered by many. He was the prime minister the day that October 7th happened, and he was the prime minister for most of the last 20 years uh, when the predicates of this event took place, and the feeling is, okay, and he refuses to take responsibility. He's the only one in the leadership, not the minister of defense, not the chief of staff of the army. All of them have come forth said they fail. They'll take personal responsibility, which means when the war is over, they're going to resign. Netanyahu has, has said basically the opposite. Mm. I, I'm the one who's made Israel stronger. So he doesn't want elections, and he's doing everything he can not to allow, allow elections to take place. So he, he wrote an op-ed, I believe it was in the Wall Street Journal, basically he was outlining the three strategic objectives for, quote-unquote, the day after, one of which is just to wipe out Hamas and... Uh, Create some sort yeah, of. Well, that's all very nice, and there's no one disagrees with that. But what ha you know, who's supposed to rule Gaza afterwards? Yeah, it's you know what what's going to happen afterwards. And the U.S. has been pushing for some redone Palestinian authority of some kind to. The UN uh, is proposing. The UN is proposing a group of experts. <laughs> Tec technocrats. Okay, but you know, whichever whichever plan you want, you still need to have a plan, right? Well, you need a leader. You need somebody who's going to take the people to the to the uh, place. right. But 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 you know, <clears throat> you you need to have a plan, even if the plan doesn't work, right? In yeah. other words, you can't guarantee your plans, but you have to go in and say, okay, this is what we want to do, X, Y, and Z. This mm -hmm. is how we plan on doing it, and okay, you know, things change obviously, but he can't present the plan because of his political constraints.
Yeah. And that's really the, the, the height of the differences between him and, and uh, Biden at this point, has been very supportive, but has been saying, okay, well, we've been supportive. What do you want to do afterwards? Because yeah. there is an afterwards. There's no way, you know. Uh, you know, his, his idea is he, the thing he presented in the his Wall Street Journal proposal was, you know, we'll do denazification as was done in, in Germany and the equivalent denazification that was done, demilitarization that was done in Japan. Easier said than done, and also considering the fact that neither the Germans nor the Japanese really had any inbound hatred of the United States, let's put it that way, imbued. And of course, you know, they the, the, and the Palestinian folks actually do. So I can understand absolutely. his reticence to uh, to uh, declare, for example, the Palestinian Authority or some group of experts. I understand all the reticence. We all have that reticence. Don't get me wrong. No one, no one doesn't. No one disagrees with the fact. No one thinks it's a good solution. Let me put it that way. Uh-huh. No one believes it's a good solution. There's no one on the Israeli left to the Israeli right who really believes it's a good good solution. But. You know, you're gonna to have to pick the worst of everything, whatever the, the best of the worst. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And whatever it is you're planning to do, you got to present it. Yeah. Fair enough, Mark. The, Mark, I need to take a little break. Can you stick around? Absolutely. All right. We're gonna have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden uh, Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Are you looking to buy or sell a home? Make it a convenient and stress-free experience by calling the dynamic and trustworthy husband and wife team of Megan and Matt Chionis with Gulf Coast International Properties. Find out about their unique and complimentary post-closing concierge services not offered by other area agents. Matt and Megan Chionis give you the competitive advantage to command a premium price for your property. They personally attend all showings, create a marketing strategy for your property, and offer that complimentary concierge service to your potential buyer. This hands-on approach has helped them set several sales records in Pelican Bay and many at near-record prices. Megan and Matt Chionis understand that as an affluent buyer-seller, your needs and desires are unique. You deserve this level of service. Megan and Matt Chionis are passionate about the Naples lifestyle and they want you to enjoy it too. Call Megan and Matt Chionis with Gulf Coast International Properties at 239-269-5310. That's 239-269-5310. You have questions about your retirement? Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. Office is located at 9015 Stratistel Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The Confident Retirement Approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. 
Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Tim Garrett. He is a candidate for Collier County Supervisor of Elections. Tim's a 33-year resident of Collier County, a military veteran, a retired sheriff officer, and a graduate of the FBI National Academy. He stands for Safe, Secure, Ethical Elections in Collier County. Vote for Tim Garrett and check out his website, votefortimgarrett.com. Paid for by Tim Garrett, Republican for Collier County Supervisor of Elections. Coming up, we're going to visit with John Mildemore, editor-at-large at fee.org. Right now, we continue the conversation with Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. Again, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you, Mark. Let's, uh, let's move our discussion to Europe, including Ukraine. What are your thoughts? Okay, so Europe past the year um, had its high points and low points. And same we could say for the Ukrainian war. Uh, first of all, we, we have to mention the fact that in the course of the year, Finland joined NATO, um, which is a big plus for NATO. And it looks like finally Sweden is going to be allowed in. The Turkish parliament approved it. And despite the fact that Erdogan has been um, dragging his feet, shall we put it that way, he's also going to approve it in the end. So both Finland and Sweden will have joined NATO, a big boost for NATO, a big boost for the alliance, and the big negative for Putin's strategic plans of dividing the West. Um, in terms of the Ukraine war, it's become more or less of a stalemate for the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Ukrainians make advances in one area, the Russians make a little advances in the other. The Russians have been uh, increasing their bombing and missile attacks on Ukraine. Ukraine has been very successful in its attacks on on the Russians. It's basically eliminated the, the Russian Black Sea fleet. And the, interestingly enough, though, the Russians no longer control the Black Sea. Uh, not, and commerce, Ukrainian commerce, can pretty much move freely now through the Black Sea because of the fact that the Russian fleet has been basically destroyed. Um, those that haven't been destroyed have moved out of range of, of the missiles. Yeah. Uh, Putin's strategy is to wait and hope Donald Trump becomes elected president. Uh, Ukraine is to hold on and hope that the Europeans will, will fill the void if the Americans... Uh, fall back. At the moment, the Europeans have been, but their ability to produce is limited. One of the things that's become very clear from um, the war is the fact that no one's producing enough weapons, as terrible as that sounds, but mm-hmm. no one is producing enough weapons. and not enough artillery shells. No, nothing is being produced in large enough numbers anywhere in the world uh, to meet uh, the needs of this war. The Russians have been forced to take North Korean stock, uh, which who knows how good it is, and the, of course, um, the U.S. has searched all over the world for equipment that the Ukrainians can use. Um, and meantime, the United States is um, building up its capacity, but it'll take another year in order to stop producing the number of shells that are needed, uh, generally speaking, even for the United States. Um, England has had a difficult year. Uh, economically, the effects of Brexit are, uh, continue to have a negative impact on the British economy. Um, it has not grown, while most of the rest of Europe has grown to some extent. Um, there have been signs of uh, signs of movement in terms of movement a little bit to the right in terms of some of the political parties, and a decision by the EU uh, to change its criteria for allowing refugees into into the EU. Uh, what's clear, and this goes back to the United States too, it goes to the whole world um, for a number of reasons, and let's not get into them. There continues to be a uh, large migration from the southern hemisphere to the northern hemisphere in the world. Yeah. Whether it's from Africa to Europe, 
or whether it's from South America to the United States, um, there is an attempt or a need, or however you want to define it, of people to move from one, you know, from that one part of the world to the other part of the world. And one of the problems that exists, and Europe has the same problem the United States does, is that the refugee con- uh, conventions that were signed after World War II, which were signed primarily because no one took in the Jews anywhere when they tried to, le- to flee Nazi Germany, and are applied widely to every type of refugee. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it's one thing when they're political refugees and another thing when they're economic refugees. And everybody wants to come to Europe or the United States because it's a better place to live. Yeah. Unfortunately, <clears throat> you know, neither Europe nor the United States, A, can accommodate everybody, and B, can do it in a haphazard fashion. Um, so it's a worldwide problem, and the Europeans have decided after all these years the EU is changing <clears throat> its definition of how it deals with refugees. What probably needs to be done is a worldwide change in the United Nations um, agreements on what refugees are yeah. and how you deal with refugees. And that's, that's really the, it, it's probably the um, crux of both the U.S. problem and the European problem. So interesting. Thank you for that, Mark. W- one development that's concerning me, and she concerns us all, I think, is the relationship, uh, economic relationship that's developing between Russia and China. Russia and China both seem to be thriving as a result. What are your thoughts? Okay, so let's look at that. Um, first of all, there's always been a good relationship between them, either in the years when they were when they were fighting about whether the, who was the true communist, obviously. Mm-hmm. You know, Maoists are Stalinists, so to speak. And uh, But, look, the Russians have been... Um, have been under embargo from the West since their invasion into, into Ukraine. Uh, they're looking for sources of continuing commerce. They're mostly surviving on the export of their oil, which... Oil is a sort of fungible, fungible item that can be sent anywhere in the world and then resent. So it's almost like uh, you know, exporting gold. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they successfully managed to export oil. Um, they have not yet bought Chinese weapons. The Chinese do not seem to be sending them weapons, but they are sending them dual-use items. Uh, so there is that strengthening of, of that relationship. Um, the Chinese are a little bit cautious. Keep in mind the fact that China ultimately relies on commerce throughout the world, mm-hmm. and China doesn't want, and the Chinese companies don't want to get in a position where they're forced, you know, they are embargoed themselves because they're doing transactions with Russia. So they're very cautious in how they go forward, um, and strategically, there's also a certain concern that you know the Chinese have their own agenda, while both of them are to some extent anti-American, not in the same ways. Mm-hmm. And so the Chinese are cautious in terms of the relationship with the Russians, which doesn't mean they're not working together in some areas. But it is true that it's a little bit less than people think, uh, primarily because each one has their own goals in mind. And we need to keep keep that in mind throughout. Um, so I think it's, 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 a, it's a mixed pic- picture there. Yeah. Um, My understanding is that uh, Russia is building a, a pipeline to China, uh, an additional pipeline to China. So in other words, to keep that trade uh, in- efficient and uh, easy, uh, Russia, of course, uh, providing oil to China, which uh, China needs. So uh, in a sense, our embargoes are kind of have limited value against the Russians. Well, okay. So the, the, like I said, they have limited value in terms of the question of um, uh, of money in the sense that the Russians, like I said, oil is, is fungible, and as long as you get it out of the country, mm-hmm. it'll get on the world market, and 
you never really know where the oil originally came from, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, in that sense, that is true. The embargoes against Russia, the bloc, is, is helping in terms of it is hurting the Russian economy. Any attempt to the Russian economy to diversify, and in this day and age where oil prices are not rising, ultimately, oil prices have slowly been going down. Um, it's not. It's beginning to hurt the Russians in in that sense. And additionally, any of their high-tech industries, etc., are being hurt. You know, there are ways of getting around certain critical components, mm-hmm. but it's hard to get around all of the technology that's in the West, and the Russian technology is way behind the West. Mm. So it is helping, it, or should I say it's hurting the Russians. It's not hermetic. Again, in this world of international commerce and third-party people, it, it's very difficult to, to turn everything off against the Russians. Yeah. So... It's helping, but not to the extent that everyone hoped. Let's put it that way. Mark, this is such an interesting conversation, and we've got other parts of the globe to talk about. Maybe we should defer the balance of this until uh, next week's discussion. Uh, Mark Schumann, again, the uh, founder and publisher of a terrific multimedia website. is called HistoryCentral.com. I hope you check it out. Mark, really appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a happy new year to you and all your listeners. Thank you so much, Mark. Same to you. All right, coming up, John Miltimore. He's the editor-at-large at fee.org. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Two-thirds of parents prefer educational options for their children, with 40% strongly preferring options for their child's education. School choice is a growing movement, one that is already lifting thousands of kids across America. The Optima Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit corporation, was founded to support the establishment and expansion of superior quality schools of choice. Optima's goal was the successful launch of Hillsdale College Varney Charter School, Initiative Classical Academies, and other schools of excellence across the state of Florida, serving kindergarten through the 12th grade. The mission is to train the minds and improve the hearts of young people through a content-rich classical education in the liberal arts and sciences with instruction in the principles of moral character and civic virtue. In a terrific product of the process, Naples Classical Academy has already opened here in Naples. You can find out more by visiting the website Optima.Foundation. Help children in Florida optimize their educational opportunities. Visit www.Optima.Foundation. Do you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me, and he'll help you too. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host... 
Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, changing lives through exceptional theater experiences. And I hope you find out more. You can get uh, tickets to some great performances coming up. The website is Gulf Shore Playhouse. Org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. Right now we have with us John Miltimore. John is the editor-at-large for Fee.org. John, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Hey, thanks for having me on, Bob. Always a pleasure, John. Tell us about Fee.org. Yeah, Fee was uh, started in 1946. Our mission is to educate the next generation <clears throat> on economics and liberty and uh, other ingredients necessary for creating a free and prosperous society. Terrific organization. I've been to national conferences, and uh, it's great to see young people celebrating uh, the Constitution, freedom, and personal responsibility. So the website, FEE.org, FEE.org. So, John, you wrote a piece. It's for the American Institute for Economic Research. It's called The Sputtering EV Market Shows What Happens When Companies Heed Planners Instead of Consumers. Maybe you could tell us about it. Yeah, you know, the, the EV market is something I've been, you know, following pretty closely for about a year now. Um, and there's a lot of bad news in the EV market. And it's not all bad. There's some good things happening there and technology's improving. Um, but the first, you know, the EV stocks have been struggling for a while, but the first real sign was over the summer, we, there were reports of just a, a massive glut on EVs on dealer lots. Now, there's a lot of cars overall. There was, you know, you know, it wasn't like there wasn't gas-powered cars on dealer lots, too. But EV lots had a massive supply, on average, 92-day supply of EVs, which is about double gas-powered cars. Mm -hmm. And uh, what it shows is basically, you know, since then we have more evidence that uh, Americans just aren't adopting EVs at the rate that they were expected to. Um, In fact, it's, it's really not even close, which is one reason why... You know, Ford Motor Company recently took a, a made a very big decision, decided it was going to cut its uh, production of its most popular EV, the Ford F-150 Lightning, in half. So mm-hmm. there's some big problems right now in the EV market. Well, I'd say one of the biggest problems, my, my view, and I, this is a, <laughs> just intuition really, is that uh, many people bought EVs because they're a, a novelty and they're a great second car, but you know they have their problems of being fueled and uh, charged up and that kind of thing. So I don't think anybody's going to buy an EV and use it as their primary form of transportation. Yeah, there's like there's several issues, and 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 we have good information on this as well. Um, one of them, I think, is exactly what you cite. It's just the reliability of them. Um, EVs don't perform as well in in cold weather we know um but there's also the the problem with charging <laughs> yeah. um where where you charge your vehicles a, a big concern for consumers um and and the truth is there hasn't been a lot of progress made on that front you know we, we it, there was a, a federal bill recently that provided billions of dollars for this um grants have gone out all over and not a single charging station has been built with that money yet. Like the ground has been broke in a couple of states, um, but the charging infrastructure is simply not there yet. That's a huge concern for consumers. And then there's also the issue of price. Um, there was a recent Harvard study that came out on this, and um, and other data shows us like this is the primary concern, even more than reliability. EVs are still way more expensive. Um, you know, on the, any given data between fifty to twenty thousand dollars more expensive than a gas-powered car, 
um, of a, you know, a, a similar model. Um, and that's a big hurdle for a lot of people. Like a lot of people don't have a, you know, an extra 15 to 20 grand hanging and just sitting around. Um, so th- there's going to be more, you know, you can call it a hiccup. I think it's actually a lot more than that. I, yeah. I, I think, um, this effort to, to kind of force consumers <clears throat> into course, them into adopting EVs, um, it's really backfiring. And if you dig into, this is another whole topic, but if you look in, a lot of this is being done because we look at, you know, EVs as just much more environmentally friendly and that they don't produce, you know, CO2 emissions. And, and all of that's simply not true. Um, in fact, it, you end up spending a lot more CO2 in, in the production phase of, of EVs than you do gas-powered cars. Yeah, that's yeah, absolutely so true. You know, I, I owned a... Uh hybrid i had to replace the uh, battery in the hybrid the cost retail cost of that was nine thousand dollars and i think it's even higher with uh with uh, the the ev vehicles that are not hybrid that i think it could be up to twenty thousand dollars to replace the battery so they don't last forever and uh you know to your point if, if this is all about uh, trying to avoid uh carbon dioxide emissions <laughs> it doesn't do that. It, it takes, I think, 70,000 miles in order to break even in terms of carbon dioxide emissions. Exactly. No, like, like, you know, some of this, you can, you know, in a perfect world, you would have less CO2 emissions with EVs, but there's really, there's certainly no guarantee of that. In fact, if you drive your EV for 45,000 miles and crash it, that, that, that was worse from a CO2 uh, perspective than than it would have been um, if you just were driving a gas-powered car. Right. And all of this is contingent, of course. That there's a lot of things. What people don't think about, when you charge your EV at night, you're probably using charger, you know, fossil fuels to charge that, right? Yeah, right. This, and, and these are things a lot of people don't think about this. I remember being in my church probably a year ago. And my, the, there was a speaker, you know, they were talking about the virtues of electric vehicles and, and how good um, you know, the speaker felt because he was doing all this environmental good. He really hadn't looked at the economics of, of EVs very closely. Yeah. Um, and you know, like they're, they are not a panacea. They, they it, it costs energy to build them. A lot of it, um, all the minerals that, you know, the strip mining that has to be done on the front end to build these things, all of that has to happen. And, um, this idea that, you know, that there are a, you know, a utopia for us, you know, can be found if we just all drive EVs. That's simply not true. And I think, you know, a lot of people think it is, and, and, and that's something, um, you know, it, just something listeners can tell, dig into this yourself a little bit. Look, look, look at the environmental costs of EVs. Um, they are real and, and uh, they're, they're not, like I said, a panacea. Absolutely. But this gets to the main point, which I want to just underscore, which I think is so brilliant on your part, John. Uh, this, uh, What's happening right now is we have the government deeply involved in trying to change behavior of consumers, and it's not working. Uh, when companies heed planners instead of consumers, you end up with problems. And uh, as I read something from the uh, Committee to Unleash Prosperity, basically said that uh, if you want to kill an industry, just have the government subsidize it. <laughs> No, exactly. And this is, you know, I, the one point I would stress for all listeners, this isn't a, you know, the, the fact that Americans aren't rapidly adopting EVs, this isn't some flaw with capitalism. This is actually capitalism working. Yes. Um, the, the truth is we, we don't have the infrastructure right now to charge all these vehicles. Americans can't afford them. This isn't a bug in, system, in the system. This is efficiency. And, and this is what we want. This is something, you know, Ludwig uh, von Mises, the, the great economist, called 
consumer sovereignty. And it's the idea in a free market economy, consumers really have the power. I think a lot of people think, you know, it, it's, it's big business or government who has all the power. In a free market system, consumers really get to, to choose what is bought, what is produced. And, um, and so this, uh, you know, I, I'm not anti-EV. Like, I'm not trying to, if people, on, you know, listening own one, I don't think they're bad. I think, you know, by, by, by trying to coerce people to get them, We've really, we've really made a mess of the market, and a lot of this, you know, we're just waiting for some of the technology to get better. EVs are going to be a long t- around for a long time. Yeah, um, we just got to stop trying to force, you know, the market and let the market work work on its own. Well, we got to get that message to President Joe Biden for somehow. So. Here. <laughs> yeah. So again, uh, um, uh, John Miltimore, again editor at large for Fee.org. John, I just really appreciate your commentary here on the show. I encourage you to visit. To uh, has your uh, has your article shown up on uh, on uh, fee.org? It'll go up on fee this week. Okay, great. We'll go to fee.org and take a look at John's work. It's just really terrific. John, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Well, thanks a lot for having me on, Bob. You have yourself a great 2024. You as well. Thank you, John. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show and the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. You have questions about your retirement? Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. Office is located at 9015 Stratistel Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The Confident Retirement Approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Blue Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining to choice are the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit blueprovencenaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's blueprovencenaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. 
Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. I proudly serve on the board. They help prepare elected officials to have winning strategies in their elected office. And you can find out more by visiting the website, thefga.org, thefga.org. We have with us Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. He's also the author of some terrific murder mysteries. His first is Follow the Leader. His its sequel is Shake the Money Tree. And his latest is called No Problem by Jim McTagg. Jim, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Oh, thank you for having me, uh, Bob. The first show of the new year, it's an honor. And I'm looking for uh, dark clouds in the silver lining. Um, I'm thinking, uh, what do I have to worry about if the Democrats win the Congress and the presidential race in 2024. And, you know, who likes that outcome? Very few people, very liberal people like that outcome. I must say, Jim, when you said that, it just dampened my spirits. (laughs) Yeah, it's like like a gut punch. However, you know, as an investor, I have to prepare for the worst. So the the worst would be, you know, the Democrats get in, uh, they see it as a mandate for what they call the progressive policy. And what might that be? So I'm looking in Europe. I'm looking at very liberal countries like France. And what I see is a lot of federal, federal spending promoting electric vehicles, should that happen, which mm-hmm. will come from the taxpayer's pocket. Sure. But in France, this is really interesting. Uh, if, if you're a poor person in France, meaning you're making under 15000 or 16000 a year, uh, they are going to offer you a $43 a month lease on an EV, no down payment, free charging for six months. So, so here is a big incentive. They're trying to boost the French EV market, you know, um, so, I mean, and, normally you'd pay a few hundred dollars, $400 a month or whatever for a lease on a three-year lease on an EV. You're saying they're going to give a consumer a $43 a month lease payment uh, for an EV and free uh, charging for six months? Yes, wow. yes. And, and now, it goes up a little. Like if you want a Fiat, that's for a, a French car called a Twingo. If you want a Fiat 500e, it's $89 a month or 89 euros, mm-hmm. approximately 80. Um, <clears throat> now, if you go over to Great Britain, what they're doing is if you're a business and you buy EVs, you get a 100% tax deduction for that, for that purchase uh, in year one. And if you're a driver, you know, in Britain, they have all these uh, fees, layers and layers of fees on their highways. They have a congestion fee if you go into London. They have a carbon tax uh, when you drive. So all those fees are waived for a number of years in Canada. If you buy an EV, they give you $5,000 Canadian right off the bat. And if you buy a hybrid 2,500. So in this country so far, Biden has only offered tax incentives to the very wealthy because only the very wealthy can afford EVs at this point. So if the Democrats were to sweep I would look for EV giveaway programs for the uh, lower classes. So that's, I, I think that's, that's they're going to see what's happening in Europe, and uh, Europe will shame them for not being aggressive enough 
on global warming. It's going to happen here. So that will increase the deficit. Uh, which right, is about Jim, I, let me just insert here, this because this is kind of intriguing. The city of Detroit <laughs> opened the country's first road capable of wirelessly charging electric vehicles as they drive this week. Uh, this has happened a couple of weeks ago. So this is about a quarter of a mile of road now, but right now the implication is that we're going to tear up all our roads and install this technology so we can charge our vehicles while we're driving. Yeah, that's funny because uh, that harks back to the turn of the century when we had trolley cars and trains with overhead electric lines. Yeah. So it's it's the same technology except it's uh, under the chassis instead of over the chassis, but you're right. Uh, that will be another grand project. It's all part of what I call the great green money grab. Right. I mean, you know, the greenies are using global warming as an excuse to raid the larder of the uh, fossil fuel guys. And so, you know, there was a popular television show in the 70s called Dallas where J.R. Ewing, the villain, owned a petroleum plant. And he was always competing uh, with a guy named Cliff Barnes, who who, who just couldn't measure up to uh, Jr.'s deviousness. If I were redoing Dallas, Jr. would be like Al Gore, a green energy guy, and Cliff Barnes would be the oil guy, and Jr. would be, you know, just running Cliff Barnes out of business and taking all his fossil fuel money. That's what's happening, and they're picking the consumer pockets as as well, because operating a car. Is going to be very, very expensive um, going forward. And yeah. you know, I have no, I have no gripe against electric cars. Like I would love to have an electric car that was um, easy to operate and had had decent battery life, so that so that it doesn't add two hours to every five hundred mile trip. Yeah, as I think well, car, and they, car and they have driver. they have great acceleration. I mean, they, they are fun to drive. There's no question. There are upsides to these things, but uh, the downside is, of course, that the the government, of course, uh, included in this uh, re- inflation reduction bill about billions of dollars to build these stations, fueling stations for the electric vehicles. Not one has been built. <laughs> <laughs> so far, and it's just unbelievable. But that this is this is the problem I have with government projects and government subsidies is they the politicians always show up for the ribbon cutting, but they never implement the plan that they've designed. Yes. So so the reason I'm talking about this is that at some point payment comes due from the taxpayer, and taxes are going to go up. So so I'm already looking for tax shelters for. 2025 and beyond in case this, in my opinion, the worst case scenario occurs at the polls. It's a depressing thought. <laughs> so, if, I think Americans just need to keep in mind the consequences of what we've had for Biden inflation, Biden inflation here for the last three years. And of course, if if in fact the Democrats win, it's going to be a continue, continuation of that and more loss of buying power, lower incomes. Uh, it's it's just not going to work. Jim, I always appreciate your commentary here on the show. I really appreciate you joining us here on the show. Happy New Year to you, and thank you so much for joining us. Happy New Year to you, Bob. Thank you. Thank you as well, Jim. Well, that's that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. We've got some great guests for tomorrow's show, including Kathleen Pasadomo, our state Senate president here in the state of Florida. I always appreciate your comments on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. 
And if you enjoy the show, I hope you'll pass the word on to your friends. That's one of the ways we support our advertisers. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. And Happy New Year. Namaste. Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com.